Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. John G makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Johnji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey, Pete. Hey, Sam. Folks, can I reintroduce you all to Peter Frick Wright, host of the Outside Podcast and friend and occasional collaborator with the show. And folks, can I introduce you to Sam, the normal, everyday, every episode host of Outside In. So, Pete, you, you live out in Portland, Oregon, and, and you surf, right? Yes. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a dedicated surfer, but as such, you'd think I would be better at it. <laughs> Do you surf? I have surfed maybe a half dozen times, uh, mostly in Maine in the fall, which means a lot of neoprene. Uh, and it also means I've never had what I think is a, a rite of passage for surfers, which is a shark encounter. Yeah. I have. So I like a lot of learning to surf comes from talking with surfers about surfing. And there's a certain amount of like, everyone has a shark story, um, but they all sort of begin the same way of just like, I was out there and I just kind of felt a tingle on the back of my neck that I couldn't explain. And I looked around like between sets and there was nothing different, but like, you know, there was, there was something like, it's just this sort of like sense and they call it out here like they call it the sharky feeling um and like when you describe you know what's the surfing like in oregon well it's cold dark and sharky because because it's just a feeling that you get yeah the thing that to me is funny is that by all rights, it, it it seems like we should be scared of sharks. Like, they're undeniably predators. They can swim at 30 miles an hour. Like, you can't see them coming when you're in the water. And all that's scary. And as someone who lives in a part of the world that has been shark-free for decades, it seems to me like fear of sharks is rational. Well, it's, it's totally rational on, like, a personal level. Um, I mean, they're huge. They regrow teeth 
at a constant, like constantly, they're constantly regrowing teeth because they use them so much. But on another level, being afraid of sharks is stupid because when you actually look at the numbers, you're just not going to be bit by a shark. I mean, it's so rare, even in sharky places. But isn't that one of those things that's like you can see the statistic, but the question is, can you actually know it? Can like can you turn off that that deep reptile part of your brain that is afraid of predators? Depends on how the waves are. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know where people are having a hard time doing that right now is Cape Cod. And while shark attacks are rare, last year one study says there were 53 unprovoked shark attacks in the U.S. That's more than any other country in the world. Last year was the first fatal shark attack in the state since 1936. And the whole region is, is kind of experiencing a full-blown freakout. It was the first deadly shark attack in Massachusetts in more than 80 years. Now, whenever there's a shark spotted, the beaches shut down. And whenever the beaches shut down, it makes the news. On the beaches of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, it is Shark Week, quite literally. More than a dozen great white sightings in just the past two days, over 100 in the past month. And the peak season is just getting started. I personally think the return of great white sharks to the waters of Cape Cod is one of the most covered natural phenomena of the new millennium. In the past few months, there have been stories in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, essentially every national outlet you can think of. Uh, But today, we are going to tell you what's really going on out there. Or at least what I think is really going on there. (laughs) (laughs) Scientists don't know, but Sam does. And I'm going to tell you. Last year, two people were attacked by sharks on Cape Cod, and one died. The result has been a media frenzy that really you have to see to believe. But when you look past the headlines, the situation on the Cape is really a clash between these two stories we tell ourselves about sharks. Is this about us learning to live with fear? Or is it about whether it's possible for us to get over our fear? Okay, Pete, so so you're a West Coast guy, yes? Yes. Born and raised and lived and never left for more than a vacation. Have you been to Cape Cod? No. Well, um, where is Cape Cod? <laughs> <laughs> Massachusetts. If you look at a map of the US, it's that like hook that's jutting out into the ocean uh, at the at the bottom of New England. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, definitively have not been there. Okay, so in your imagination, what is Cape Cod like as someone who like only g- generally knows where it is? Uh, it's full of chowder <laughs> and uh, fishermen. <laughs> um. <laughs> Cape Cod, I think it's, it's a place I, I can't help but love, but also kind of hate it because it's so goddamn quaint. Mm. Like they're all these very well-kept little downtowns surrounded by historic homes with like immaculate cedar shingles for siding. Um, but it also, it's very touristy. The The stat that I've read is that it's like four or five million tourists go there each year. And so it's got that feeling that a lot of places with a tourist economy have like... Nothing's really real. Yeah. I mean, it, it just feels like a service economy. But... 
as you point out, Cape Cod's economy did used to be all about fishing. I mean, there were so many cod that colonial farmers and, and native people used to use the fish for fertilizer. Oh, wow. The waters were rich. They were abundant with all kinds of all kinds of wildlife and marine life. Um, one of my interesting tidbit facts that I love is that they were not common, but there used to be walrus even in the Gulf of Maine in the what? southern. Yes. <laughs> to give us the long view here, this is Andrea Bogomolny, who heads up the Northwest Atlantic Seal Research Consortium. So I grew up on the West Coast, um, and then I moved out 20 years ago almost to the East Coast to start a master's degree and fell in love with Woods Hole, and I fell in love with this place, and I stayed. And so when Europeans first arrived here in New England, there were great white sharks. Correct. And, you know, we we look to the written record or images, right, in order to document what we see. And one of my, my favorites is Thoreau, who wrote Cape Cod and described, you know, such an abundance of sharks that why would you go swimming in those waters? Hmm. They were definitely here and they were in great abundance as well. But as the scale of fishing started to ramp up, that abundance started to disappear. And it happened fairly early, like even before steam-powered boats and fine mesh nets and factory trawlers, all these things that we associate with overfishing. Back when it was just sailboats, fishermen started to notice that there were fewer fish. And so in response, in 1888, they started to kill seals. So seals were bounty hunted. So the state of Maine and Massachusetts put bounties on seals. And so you could bring a seal nose into your town hall, either a dollar or five dollars a nose kind of thing. Um, and it did a, a very good job of wiping out all gray seals. At a dollar a nose for about a decade around the turn of the century, Maine and Massachusetts were paying out for a thousand or two thousand or even as many as five thousand seals a year. Uh, and it was as the seals started to disappear that the great whites disappeared too. So this was this brief ecological anomaly in the state of Massachusetts. I mean, the, the seal bounties ended in 1962. What are some things that happened in, the, in those intervening years? So, so 1962 to today is when, is when the seals came back. Like what, maybe we could sort of speculate wildly here. Sure. So they stopped offering money for killing them. Right. Um, the, I mean, the whole environmental movement started around 62, 66. Yeah. Um, with Silent Spring, uh, what else would they do? There was there was the Endangered Species Act, but interestingly, neither neither seals or great white sharks have were ever listed. Hmm. But there was the Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1972. It made it a crime to kill a seal. Okay, wow, what a turnaround for the seals. Yeah, and there was but there was one other event that actually had nothing to do with the seal recovery that that happened in between. Uh, I don't know this. The... Oh, they made Jaws. Yeah, they made Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Jaws? Yes. Uh, for in, in my formative years. This is funny. I had actually never seen it until two years ago, which when I was reporting the story and just sort of poking around, I discovered put me in this tiny minority that, that four out of five Americans has seen the movie Jaws. Yeah, well, it's on. I mean, have you never had cable CV? <laughs> like, how do you avoid, have you, like, or, or, you know, you're, you're probably someone who's just never been home sick from school. <laughs> But when I finally did watch it, it's a really good movie. Oh, yeah. Good, good movies have very clear enemies and complications. And, like, there's nothing more simple or uncomplicated than a shark. They got to get the shark. And, the, and that really is set up in this one very striking scene 
which is Captain Quint's monologue. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into her side, Chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady, just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. And for the 20% who don't know, Quint is just this, like, archetypal fisherman. He's actually a shark hunter that the town hires to kill the shark, and he's motivated by... What a coincidence, having been, you know, the fictional survivor of what is a real-world event, what, what's alleged to be the worst instance of shark attacks in human history, the sinking of the USS Indianapolis in World War II. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you, and those black eyes roll over white, and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, and they rip you to pieces. This, like Jaws generally, but then Captain Quint specifically... Is, is sort of our original American shark story. Like, the story is that sharks are scary, they want to eat us, and, and that we need to take action in order to keep ourselves safe. But in the years since Jaws, another shark story has been taking hold. So, uh, do you know the story of the author of the, of the novel, Jaws? Uh, I, no. I know it's Peter Benchley. Peter Benchley, uh, East Coaster. Before writing fiction, he was a journalist, he was a speechwriter for LBJ, and after writing Jaws, he was filled with regret, and he wound up devoting the rest of his life to ocean conservation. And actually, here he is in 2004, he's being interviewed uh, two years before he died. So is that true? You feel like you couldn't write that novel now, Jaws, knowing what you know? No, I've uh, got to remember how long ago that was. There was no Earth Day when I was <laughs> writing that book. There was no environmental consciousness at all. The book actually came out after the first Earth Day, but eventually says he started thinking about it well before then. He wrote at one point, no, the shark in an updated Jaws could not be the villain. It would have to be written as the victim, for worldwide, sharks are much more the oppressed than the oppressors. Now, we don't still don't know a great deal, but what we do know, you certainly couldn't, I couldn't demonize the animal. Every year, tens or even hundreds of millions of sharks are killed, many for consumption, for their, for their fins at least, but others just for sport in these macho shark fishing tournaments. And 17% of all shark species are endangered or vulnerable. And Benchley became racked with guilt that he had made this worse and started pushing for a new narrative. Jaws was famously shot on Martha's Vineyard. And Martha's Vineyard, for those who don't know, is an island just off of Cape Cod. Uh, And when it came out, there was this fear that the movie was such a smash hit that it would scare people away from the Cape because, because they were associated now with sharks. But of course, that is not what happened. The original Jaws in 1975 was a huge hit here in Chatham for obvious reasons. So that's Kevin McLean. He runs a local independent movie theater in Chatham, uh, which is out on the Cape, sort of the heel of the Cape. Uh, And they had a movie theater that was turned into a CVS for a while, but in 2013 they reopened it. It's called the Chatham Orpheum. And of course, everybody in town their first thing was, you got to show Jaws. The first movie has to be Jaws. You know, that has to be the first movie. It's kind of the quintessential Chatham movie. When you wander around downtown Chatham right now, it's 
bananas. There's there's shark stuff for sale everywhere. The tourist shops, the gas stations. There's shirts with like shark bites out of them. There are hats with shark bites out of them. There are little plush sharks. It's it's kind of become the mascot. And in the Chatamorphium, they have screenings of Jaws all summer long. And Kevin says they almost all sell out. And some of them are like, they're like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where the audience is like shouting their favorite lines. And there's this one scene where where Quint uh, crushes a beer can and, and like people buy Narragansett beers and they crush them at that moment uh, during that scene. I love it. <laughs> people start emailing me in April and May. You know, we're coming to Chatham in August. We want to know when the Jaws screenings are. People friggin' love the sharks. You know, there's a great line in the movie where they're standing in the middle of the street and he says, you know, if you yell shark on the 4th of July, we're going to have a stampede on our hands. People are going to run from the beach. But what's happened is that it sparked a curiosity for sharks. It was an inspiration for people. And so what I always tell people, you know, that was back in 1975. Absolutely. In right now, you yell shark, they run to the beach. So to me, this is a hypothesis, right? Like, you know, back in the 80s in particular, when when they started to sell the shark memorabilia, they were thinking about the idea of a shark. But now we stopped killing the seals and the seals came back amazingly fast. This is Andrea again. They came from somewhere. They rebounded because they were able to recolonize, and they came from Sable Island. So, Pete, can you are you at your computer right now? Yeah. Can you pull up a Google Map uh, tab? Yes. Okay, Google Google Sable Island. Okay. Tell me what you see. I see a uh, like a half moon crescent, like like the thinnest sliver of a moon, but it's an island in the ocean. And and scroll out. See, tell me how far it is from stuff. Uh, it is. 10 scrolls out. <laughs> wow. It's way out. Sable Island is a very weird place. So it's tiny. As you said, it's 12 square miles. I mean, it's barely in Canadian waters. Hmm. And Sable Island has 400,000 seals on it. Whoa. Uh, and also, randomly, 500 feral horses. <laughs> How did the horses get there? You only got time for one species in this podcast, Pete. Now, seals, seals are not migratory, they, but they do disperse, which means if there's some place that's crowded, like, say, a tiny half-moon sliver way out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, they do try to find someplace new. And, and what we know is that some of the seals that wound up repopulating Cape Cod and the islands came from Sable Island because, because some of the scientists would actually brand the seals that were up there with numbers to keep track of them. Um, there were people paying attention here on Cape Cod and noticed that one of these branded animals was on Nantucket. And so people started noticing these, these animals coming back. So the bounty ends in 62. By the 90s, there's some seals pupping again on the Cape and Islands. And and today, counting both harbor and gray seals, we're up to somewhere between like 100 to maybe 110,000 uh, out on the Cape. Wow. And, and with the seals came the sharks, which means that we now get to test Kevin's hypothesis, this idea that if you yell shark, people run to the beach and not away. Hey, man. I'm rolling. So I want to introduce you to, um, you introduce yourself? Captain Darren. Uh, Captain Darren Saletta, Monomite Sport Fishing. What's your boat's name? 
rising sun. He's a charter boat captain. Uh, tell me, just tell me about your business. What do you do, and and how do you make a living? I run uh, primarily fishing charters and eco tours. Uh, we do uh, a combination of fishing charters, whale watching, and we do great white shark tours as well. Great white shark tours. Hmm. So we work with a private spotter plane, and then yeah, the spotter plane locates the sharks, puts us on them, and we can get up you know to at a safe distance of the shark so we're not bothering the shark but you get a good view depending on the clarity of the water so pete how much would you pay to go see a great white shark how long is the tour two hours two hours uh i would pay forty dollars you're hiring the boat and an airplane yeah makes it a little bit pricey but uh uh, the trip is fourteen hundred dollars it's about a two to two and a half hour trip wow fourteen hundred dollars sir wow how uh, popular is that business? It's it's a product in high demand. So so how this works? They hire this this plane. I did not know this. This is a whole side hustle for anyone who's got a Cessna and a pilot's license. Is you can be a fish spotter, hmm. and the, the primary duty of a fish spotter is to find big swordfish and tuna for those fishermen for whom landing a single fish can be worth thousands of dollars. But in this instance, uh, their job is to go and look at sharks. And actually, I actually spoke with one of these fish spotters. Uh, his name's Wayne Davis. How high are you flying, and how, and how do you spot a shark? Like, what's it look like from, uh, from the plane? looks like a shark. Uh, a dark gray body against a sandy bottom. Wayne, Wayne actually, though, as a, as a spotter, is mostly working for the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, which is this nonprofit that popped up in 2012. Uh, it funds shark conservation and research and, and is currently working on a census that's trying to estimate the shark population uh, off the Cape. You know, at any beach, at any time, believe me, there can be a shark 100 feet away. And that's his takeaway, is that having been up there and looked down at the beaches, they are everywhere. You know, other than hunger, I'm not sure what what uh, makes them react to, to a target, but I've just seen them swim by so many surfers and swimmers, and sometimes close, and it's made me aware that these aren't the, you know, the term man-eater. It's, it's one of the, the dumbest things that was ever created. Outside just published a thing, like a... a just sort of like you're you're usually much closer to a shark than you think and it's like now that people like kite surfers are now putting gopros up in their kites that like look back down at them in the water and like the number of sharks just sort of following them and watching them it seems like every other week there's someone in like monterey california and the helicopter the police helicopter is like above them on the megaphone saying like get out of the water yeah um yeah, it's like as our ability to see into the ocean has increased, um, the the number of the, or the the nearness of sharks is is like just now becoming apparent. So the question is, if that's the reality, if there are sharks everywhere, if you know, if it's cold, dark, and sharky out there. What is the story that we're telling ourselves? Is is this Steven Spielberg's Jaws? Like, this is scary and we need to do something? Or is this Peter Benchley's revised Jaws, where, where the shark is the victim? And I, I wanted an answer to that, so I went to a beach with a microphone. Can I get your names? Uh, Clive. Lona. Brent Baumgartner. I'm Amy Bailey. And, and I asked folks how they felt. Um, so had you heard about the, the situation with the sharks here on the Cape prior to arriving? No, not, not before we got here. And obviously a lot of them 
are freaked out. Um, and what, what did that make you think? Um, we won't be getting in the water. <laughs> <laughs> you did go in, but not very far. <laughs> Basically, this side of the Cape, we stay out of the waters. You know, it's funny. I actually found a single public opinion poll uh, that kind of quantified this. Found a couple of things. 51% agree with the statement, I am absolutely terrified of sharks. <laughs> which, which I'm kind of like, yeah, duh. Um, but this surprised me. 38% of people say they're afraid to go into the water because of sharks. Hmm. I'd stay real close to shore. I don't yeah. think I'd go over my waist. But yeah, I would stay where I can touch at least. But when I was talking to folks down on the beach, the thing that was really surprising to me was the degree to which Peter Benchley's remake was what I was hearing from people. It, it, it's just, it's just nature. You, you've, you've got to, you've, you're, you're in their territory now, so you just got to know. Well, it's nature. You can't impede nature. I just think we just have to let nature take its course in that respect. The ocean is where they live, so you can't really tell them where to go. It does not bother us. And I, I think the poll bears this out. 82% of people say they agree that sharks perform a vital role for ecosystems, and 75% say they should only be hunted or killed if it's absolutely necessary. Seals eat the fish. Sharks eat the seals. Yeah, I, you know. It's their space, right? Yeah, 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 we're just here visiting. My conclusion after about a week of interviews down there was we're living in Jaws 2, the Jaws in which the shark is not the villain. Just as in Jaws, there's been a fatality now in the Cape. Last year, a 26-year-old kid from Brazil who was getting his master's in engineering up in Massachusetts was bitten and died while boogie boarding. But instead of the reaction that you see in the movie where the town hires a shark hunter to take revenge, I'm just hearing this narrative of ocean conservation from the lay public. Or at least that's what you get when you ask tourists on the beach. When you talk to folks who are out, in, and on the water a lot, it's a different story. To some, sharks are still out to get us. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. That's after a short break. 
All right. If you Google sharks on Cape Cod, you'll see a lot of quotes, a lot of op-eds, a lot of news stories about folks who want something to be done about the sharks. The original name of these creatures in the marine biology Bibles that we used to educate marine biologists up until the 70s, their name was man-eater. Yeah, right. Correct? Yeah, that's right. And uh, that particular phrase or description has been struck uh, by the so-called conservationists. Um, but prior to that, they were called man-eaters. So that's John Cartsunis, who is a surfer who lives in Wellfleet, which is out on the outer cape towards the end of the, the hook. And he's involved with a group of local residents who launched something called um, Cape Cod Ocean Community. It was formed after the fatal attack that happened last year. And the central message is essentially, you have got to do something about this. September 15th was Cape Cod's 9-11. That was the day that changed everything here on Cape Cod. We lost our innocence. I interviewed this group. There are four of them all together. Uh, and some of the statistics that you hear about shark attacks that, you know, like you're more likely to be killed by heat stroke or lightning strikes or train crashes. There's actually even uh, a, a statistic that more people are killed each year being crushed by a vending machine than die from shark attacks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they hate these statistics. That's complete propaganda and more misinformation. If they took the sample of people that actually recreate in the water on Cape Cod and the amount of shark encounters, as uh, the Conservancy likes to call them, and spotted sharks and beach closures, if you take all of that, then the chances of someone being affected by sharks that are marauding our beaches are very, very high. And this is the misinformation that's spewed out there to basically hoodwink the public to say that, you know what, you're going to have more of a chance of getting into a car accident than getting bit by a shark. Yeah, if you live in Nebraska, I agree. But if you live in Wellfleet, they're completely wrong, and they're doing the public here a huge misservice. So if if they are, if this new narrative is that uh, sharks are actually dangerous, like what do they propose that that people do about it? Well, so so for one, they're they're pushing for surveillance, right? There, there's a thing called clever buoy, uh, which is the sonar buoy that uses machine learning to to detect sharks uh, and and tell people if there's one in the water. And it's actually it's it's an Australian company. It's being piloted down in California, though. Uh, but essentially, so far, we don't even really know if the thing works. Like we don't we don't know if it's got false positives or false negatives. It they and they and they kind of recognize that. Like they think, let's just give it a try. So this is Drew Taylor. He's another surfer from Wellfleet. Do we have an obligation to put something in the water that we're not going to stand behind? As far as this is, you know. 100% safe and guaranteed, but just use it as a pilot study. Use it as a study that, as we're kind of starting to use as our little quote, better than nothing. And I think something along those lines could happen. The National Seashore is conducting a study right now of technological solutions to keep people informed about shark activity. It's actually expected out like any day now. Like I was hoping they would put it out before we put this story out. But surveillance is just the near-term goal for these folks. Long-term They've got their sights set on the thing that's attracting the sharks. They've got their sights set on the seals. This is Chick Frody, who also has a house out on the Outer Cape. If somebody from outer space came down here and they saw 
our whole world, they wouldn't say, well, nature's here and the humans are here. They'd actually probably think we were part of nature. He says Cape Cod's fishermen knew that, and they did not feel conflicted about reshaping the ocean to better suit their needs. So, yes, they culled the seals, and that allowed the fishing industry to be really good here. And people say, well, that's their ocean, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. Well, that used to be our ocean until that was changed with a stroke of a pen in 1972. So these local residents have joined forces with an already existing constituency, commercial fishermen, who who have been calling for reform to the Marine Mammal Protection Act for a decade, and they want fewer seals. This again is Captain Darren, who, uh, yeah, he runs shark tours, but his primary business is fishing charters, and he's also a surfer. I, I think it really is going to come down to reducing the uh, the prey, but yeah, that's, it's obviously a concern for me, and and my son, and I, I want him to have the experience that I had growing up, and right now it's certainly not a safe environment for anyone to be going in the water. There, you know, anyone that thinks they can without a high risk of being preyed upon is, you know, brave or kidding themselves, one or the other. There have been calls by people who live on Cape Cod to return to the days of the seal bounty. There's historically been this desire to scapegoat seals. It's not new. Um, This has been happening through time. (laughs) Um, You know, you go back to the 1800s when there was this perception that, you know, the fish were gone because of the seals. And part of that, I think, scapegoating is when, you know, you're angry at something or things have changed and you don't know where to put that anger or that frustration. And I see that almost every day with the seals. That's Andrea again, the seal researcher. She agrees that seals eat a lot of fish. Nobody would deny that. But she says that the reason fisheries declined was overfishing, not seals. And I think I think what I'm arguing here is that sharks now have this whole architecture of conservation that's been working to rehab their image. And so it's not terribly popular to hate on the sharks. And so the anger just kind of moves down the food chain and it lands on this other creature that is more common and historically has just been like a receptacle for the dislike of ocean communities. It's it's landed back on the seals. That's interesting. It's like we can't be angry at the sharks anymore because we know how important they are. Right, and how endangered they are. And so you're saying calling for killing sharks is going to mean backlash, but you've already got the fishermen who are calling for fewer seals. So killing the seals is actually the path of least resistance. Yeah, but I think I think the real question here is how would that work? Andrea thinks that if you wanted the sharks to actually leave, you'd have to kill a lot of seals. You would have to eliminate pretty much every pup you could, every adult you could, and which is why the bounties were successful back in the 1880s, 1962. There was this effort to do that at every single location. We'd basically have to call them down to zero again. And that is ultimately a political question. Like, you've got a whole legal framework that is going to have to change if we want to to move the the needle here, which is why I called uh, Bill Keating. Congressman? Yes. You should be on with Sam. Sam, are you there? I am here. Okay. So this is a call with Bill Keating. He's on his cell phone. He's the congressman for Cape Cod. And I figured that if anyone's going to be on board for this, it would be someone in his position because you know, surfers and fishermen aside, tourism to the Cape is the goose that lays the golden egg, right? And sharks might threaten that. But even Bill Keating is not on board with this idea. It would be a non-starter because the scientific evidence is clearly saying right now it wouldn't do any good. 
like just imagine the shit show it would be. Like you've got to convince not just uh, like surfers and bathers and environmentalists in New England that it's in their best interest to cull seals, but you're going to need congressmen from the West Coast voting for a bill that's about killing seals, right? Yeah. Like this is just not an easy political fight to, to take up. So it's like here we are, right? Like it doesn't seem like anything's going to change. Like the sharks are back on Cape Cod and that's just the new reality. Hmm. And they're and they're protected because the thing they eat is very cute. <laughs> very charismatic. Exactly. So now what they're doing, I mean, they're stocking lifeguard stations with tourniquets. They've like sprinkled landlines along the beach in spots where cell service is bad. And they've got these great big terrifying signs everywhere warning about sharks. Uh, And, you know, it's crazy. Like the whole region is just buzzing. Every time a beach is closed, it's in the news. Uh, Every public meeting that someone's talking about, the response to the sharks is just swarmed with reporters. And it's bananas. It's a circus. It's a total circus. I have a friend who's a surfer in New England, and he has an app called Sharktivity. Yeah, that's that was made by the the White Shark Conservancy. Well, so he looks at it before he goes surfing, and what he does is he goes to a beach that doesn't have any sharks at it or like any <laughs> reported shark sightings. Yeah, and uh, it took him about two trips to realize that the reason that these beaches don't have any reported sharks is that there's just no people there. Yes, exactly. Because after on his second trip or something like that, a shark showed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is, which sort of gets you to it. It's like so far every measure we have is imperfect. Yeah. Right? And so and so my question was sort of like like I just felt like I wanted to point out this this fact that that I feel like is very rarely pointed out in stories about sharks in Cape Cod, which is that if you look, so there's this thing, the International Shark Attack File keeps track of every confirmed, unprovoked (laughs) shark attack. Unprovoked shark attacks? Is there such a thing as a provoked shark attack? A provoked shark attack would be, for instance, if you were to catch a shark, bring it into your fishing boat, and then it bit you. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Okay. So they distinguish. Right. Right. And over the last 20 years, on the whole East Coast, there have been three bites. Three people have been bitten by a great white shark. One of those was fatal. And on the West Coast, in that same period, over the past 20 years, there have been 34. And four of those were fatal. Hmm. And it's just like, why is this a news story every time someone sees a shark on Cape Cod? I called up the shark attack file and I talked to Tyler Bowling, who manages the data set. He's down at the Florida Museum of Natural History. On the West Coast, it seems like there's greater risk, but but there isn't this outcry, and East Coast there is. And and like I, them be, just being used to it, I guess I like I guess that's true. I think it's just I, I, there's more of a surfing culture over there so they're they're exposed to it more and if you talk to these surfers the majority of the time they're like yeah we see them all the time we know they're there we know the risk it's i'm still going out and you talk to these guys who get bit and they're like yeah i'll be about as soon as i'm out of the cast they just accept the risk and they're more aware of it and i think that um it just seems like the cape cod area and uh it's just i don't want to say the word ignorant but they were uh just sort of blissfully unaware and and suddenly the sharks were kind of more prevalent and and it was a little scary. Well, sure, that's an awfully easy answer. 
it's funny. I, I wanted to talk to surfers out on the Cape, uh, but the surf was terrible while I was there. And, and I would wander into surf shops. And as soon as I walked in, they would just like <laughs> one. Literally, as soon as I walked in with my microphone and I said I was working on a shark story, the guy just said, go away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there were a few of them I just hung around and I pestered and I turned the microphone off and they would chat with me for a few minutes. And and one of them sort of told me offhandedly that like no one wants to talk to you because no one wants to be the shop that says it's okay to go back in the water and then like somebody gets bit. But But clearly like that's what a lot of surfers already think. So so when I was out on the beach just talking to tourists, there was one woman who I was immediately like, ah, yes, you're a fellow traveler. <laughs> My name is Amy Chambers. Where are you from? Uh, I grew up here, and I currently live in Vermont. It was like Patagonia gear, sweet beach tent set up, uh, very engaged in the conversation right away. She is a boogie boarder and surfs a little bit. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the whole shark thing, the whole shark zeitgeist? Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you ask because I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, but it hasn't swayed my decision to get into the water until yesterday. I got in, but a seal had uh, just swam by that had gotten bit. But previously, the lifeguards... So scarred. Scarred, yeah, but it was a big old gash. Like, it looked bad, but he seemed to be doing fine. And it was the first time that I questioned getting in the water, ever. But but did you, when you say you questioned, did you change your, your decision? Or were you just sort of like, uh? I still went in, but there was a moment where the tide was changing and there was this really deep spot and I just, I found another spot to go, <laughs> but I still went in. I do other things that are dangerous. I go skiing, I drive, I fly in planes, so I... It seems to me that this is on the list and maybe a little bit more of a known factor, but um, I'm still going to go swimming. I think it'd be really cool to see a shark. I just don't want to be right next to it when it pops up, honestly, like and have it mistake me in my wetsuit for a seal. And honestly, there have been reactions on the extremes. Folks saying they'll never go in the water again. Folks calling for the killing of sharks or seals. And you know, like, it's possible that Cape Cod may be about to become some sort of global shark attack hotspot and and prove me wrong. But I think for now, behind the hype and sensationalism, most of the people out on the beach are in a different place today than when Jaws first came out. Most of us are a little concerned, but also just kind of mesmerized. In was produced this week by Sam Evans-Brown and Peter Frick-Wright, with help from Jimmy Gutierrez, Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, Michael Roberts, and me, Erica Janik. Special thanks to Outside Magazine, music in this episode from Robbie Carver and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipt. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipt, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big. 